Uh, now, we're in the last week of a teaching series where we're, that we've called Conversations, where we've been engaging with different art ideas in the arts, in music and films and various things. We've looked at This Is Us, we've looked at Stormzy's Blinded by Your Grace, and then Luke, the main man, Harmer, over there, kicked us off, uh, talked to us last week about The Lion King and the philosophy behind the circle of life. Well, today I'm concluding that four-week mini-series, um, looking at the TV show This Is Us. And part of our kind of drive behind this really has been trying to educate and teach us to, to learn to not just consume art and not even just to receive it on the level of a gut response, how does it make me feel, but instead to engage thoughtfully with the messages behind the things that are being essentially preached at us through the things that we engage with on a day-to-day basis. And today we're talking about grief and loss in this TV show. Uh, this Is Us is on Amazon Prime. It's not something that I would expect many people to have seen, but I think the ideas in the clip we're about to watch are ones that will resonate with all of us. Um, it's a show about the Pierces, uh, it's a fa- an American family who are struggling to deal with the loss of the dad of the family, Jack, and it's about their interaction. But essentially it's about the interconnectedness of reality and time and space and things like that. So I'm going to try and do technical things and not break things, and we're going to watch this clip together. Okay, ready? There we go. I should explain the background to the clip. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, like, who is he and who are they and what's going on? And wasn't it lovely? Let's turn to the Bible. So the background is um, Kevin, the guy who's just walked in. I always feel like a teenage girl trying to find deep meaning in songs whenever I do this. So Kevin, the guy, the background, the background is this, a few hours earlier, he was sat down with his nieces and they asked him a question about death and he made a complete pig's ear of the answer of it and freaked them out and they're basically left wondering, are you going to die? Is mum and dad going to die? We're all going to die. It was terrifying for them and amusing for us to watch. And then now Kevin comes to their room to make amends and to hopefully do a better job of explaining death and loss to them. And you'll see the scene cuts back and forth between images of other members of the family as well. Okay? I think that's enough. Let's see. It's a, I think, a moving and a beautiful explanation of things. And I think it, in a country that is increasingly secular, it's probably as close to a good news or a gospel that we can get when we think about death and what happens after we die. Um, It's something that strikes a chord with you, whatever you believe, because it speaks to, I think, us as humans. The ideas are very different to what the Bible might have to say about life and death in part. And this week, you see, I'm not interested so much in in critiquing the ideas, though, behind the scene, uh, so much as I'm wanting to just try to create some space for us to to think honestly and openly about grief and about loss. A friend once told me or advised me um, with my kids, he said, try to make sure that you're the first person who talks to them about sex. He said, if you can, try to talk to them before their parents do, oh, sorry, before their teachers do, and even before, if you can help it, they start talking about it on the school playground. Because he said, Whoever talks to them first about sex becomes the authority 
on sex in their life. I think the same can be said for grief and death and loss. And I think in the church, we can sometimes be, be guilty of, of not allowing ourselves to feel the full force of one another's grief enough. We don't do public lament well. And the Bible says that we're to mourn with those who mourn, which is hard to do well in public services. I think the noise of a Sunday gathering and the, the emphasis on celebration, it makes it hard for us sometimes to genuinely share painful stories and journeys that haven't resolved yet. It's hard to share them in the public arena. And when it comes to grief, sometimes we can just quote Bible verses at one another and we can be very quick to move on to the hope that we have in Jesus such that we don't give the impression that Christianity has very much to offer by, by way of genuine support for the grieving. I don't think that's true, but I think it's a problem for us, especially when we come across emotionally charged TV shows that present ideas about grief and loss that resonate with us at a deeper level than perhaps the level we get from our churches and from our Bible readings. And what we do, like a lot of ideas we imbibe from TV, is we end up building a practical theology for life on those ideas, and we start thinking more and more about death and grief and loss in those terms. It's a very Eastern, eternal, everything is one idea, which is very different from the Bible's idea of things. And we're all going to die, and the fact of our own mortality is critical and fundamental to how we think about life and how we live our lives. And the approach of the TV show is a, a philosophical and a therapeutic one. It's trying to make us feel better about the reality of things. And what it does is it, it, it puts a man with a pretty picture and some cute little kids, wide-eyed, staring, and an emotional soundtrack in order to distract us from, gen from thinking about the genuine terror that we should rightly feel about death. Now, several months ago, I, I went for a, a walk around the graveyard in Seaford, really just to read some of the epitaphs on the tombstones. Um, and and it, was, it was a strange, kind of deeply moving and, and oddly terrifying experience. Like, it felt like I was reading these epitaphs one after the other, and in my soul, I felt like I was standing over like a chasm, an abyss that was ready to swallow me up. And my mind couldn't really get its head around the fact that that was my destiny as well, that one day I would be there um, and someone would be coming to visit some memorial stone about me. I saw gravestones of young men who died in battle, aged 21, aged 19, aged 25, one after the other. And then older people uh, died aged 64, died aged age 82, died aged 36, my age. I think it's fair to say that on a spectrum of fascination with death at the one end, like the Victorians, uh, or like this, these people in Indonesia I came across recently who, who visit their dead every year and take them out of a coffin to take photos and selfies of themselves with their dead relatives in order to feel their presence with them again. On a spectrum of fascination at the one end and complete denial and avoidance with death at the other, it's fair to say we are like right down this end. Our whole society emphasizes youthfulness and beauty and newness. And when we talk about the future, the future is always, 
awesome. It's always going to be better. By which, when we talk about the future, we presumably mean not too far into the future, <laughs> because if we go too far into the future, we're in the grave. But the future is awesome. Now, I know in talking about this for many, maybe most of you in the room, grief and loss is not some theoretical, sometime in the future thing. It's a living and abiding, present and painful part of your story. And in talking about things today, I'm really not wanting to just pick at your wounds. Uh, in fact, I'm hoping to do just the opposite. Because I think by talking about and acknowledging our grief and our pain, hopefully in doing so, we also honour the memory of those that we've loved so much and love so much. I don't, I don't pretend to think I've suffered the intrusion of death too much into my life. Uh, but I have taken the funerals of quite a few people and lost loved ones in the church. And when I was 27, my dad died, uh, which is an experience that, although the pain isn't as raw, the memories of that is still just as vivid. Uh, see, my dad had been sick with cancer for many years, and he was in and out of hospice care for, for several months. I can still remember the day I got the phone call from my mum um, to tell me that it was time, time to come home. I just put my son, Riley, in a carry sling. Uh, I was about to go for a walk when she called and she told me. And it was as though someone, bam, punched me in the stomach. I was just, in an instant, collapsed on the floor with just tears pouring on this little poor baby's head. There's a difference between knowing that someone's going to die someday and knowing they're going to die today. And despite our efforts as a family to get to him on time, he died 45 minutes before we arrived. I remember walking into the hospice. I was greeted by my mum, and she said to me, he died at 3 o'clock. And again, it was like a bam, a punch in the stomach, on the floor, grief. And then began really the new reality of my life, the world that dad wasn't in, isn't in. And that's what it was for a while in grief. I go for a few minutes or a few hours, and then all of a sudden, bam, someone would punch me in the stomach again and be on the floor, doubled over in pain, crying onto whatever or whoever was around. It's quite awkward when you're in public. <laughs> it's like someone. I remember after he died, um, I went to McDonald's on the way home from hosp the hospice and bought myself a quarter pounder with cheese meal. I never ate it. I don't know why I bought it. I think I was just trying to pretend that things were normal. We'd buy McDonald's in normal life. But in the weeks that followed my dad's death, I had an experience that I wasn't expecting. I felt, I felt as though a real part of me had actually been severed or amputated, chopped off. I felt like I'd lost a limb. It wasn't physical, but it felt very physical, like it was located somewhere between my rib and my arm. There was this, this vacuum that opened up in my soul that dad used to occupy. It was very unexpected, but very powerful and meaningful. I think it, for me, it spoke to the reality of uh, a non-material part of me, a soul, if you like. At the same time as that, I think I became very aware that although my dad has gone, almost like Kevin's trying to articulate in the painting, although he's gone, he was still with me. Because I was aware that, I guess on, on a practical level, I carry his genes, 
So his abiding presence in the world is in me. Our ancestors are in our bones. And sometimes in the church, we don't acknowledge the reality and force of that enough. Paintings and pictures and stories like that help us. Our ancestors are with us in our bones in some, some strange, mysterious way. I also noticed, as we often do when we lose people, my mannerisms and my expressions mean that the man who's looking back at me in the mirror increasingly looks like my dad. And by the sheer fact that my kids were calling me dad meant that dad, in some sense, was here. I got to play his part in the world. You see, those are thoughts that stay with me really nine years after his passing. The description of life and death in the scene is a beautiful one. And if there's no God in heaven, maybe it is the most beautiful way we can spin the fact of death. I mean, there's no real life after death, as in a conscious, lived experience. But if the people live on in our lives in the fabric of the universe, then we can take comfort from the fact that somehow they're, they're still in the painting, aren't they? And we've, we've added our color to the painting. In that sense, he says, there's no dying. There's no you or me or them. There's just us. How very beautiful. How very Eastern. The trouble is, I think it's also very sentimental. And it doesn't really take the severity or finality of death seriously enough gone means gone the world i'm in now is a world that my dad doesn't know nor will he ever know it all belongs to the future that he never got to see and that hurts no matter how much I listen to therapeutic statements of paintings like that, I feel an aching sadness with, that my kids will never know my dad. They'll never play games with him. He'll never teach them to change the oil in a car, which, let's be honest, they'll never learn from me. So <laughs> they're done for. And simply saying he's part of the painting of life, I think, patronizes the fury that we rightly feel at the harshness and finality of death. On top of that, it's not really consistent with the soil of atheism that belief like that grows out of. It may be honest, uh, sorry, it may be helpful for the bereaved to picture reality this way, but from the point of view of the person who's dead, there's no painting, there's no conscious awareness of life, and that doesn't square with my expectation of what I long for in my soul. We have eternity, a sense of longevity built into our souls. You see, a, a, more, honest, a, more, honest, honest, a more honest and probably accurate epitaph of life was one that was developed and used by many people in the ancient world, uh, particularly Stoic, people who subscribe to Stoic philosophy. Uh, it's this one here. Uh, you can't really read that. I just thought I'd put a picture up. It says in Latin, I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. That's perhaps a little bit too brutal, <laughs> a little bit too stark for us sentimental modern types to really be able to handle. What tends to happen when we talk about death is that we either minimize its seriousness or we distract ourselves from having to think about it at all death but here's a pretty picture and some wide-eyed kids look at them isn't it lovely i remember when my dad died a week later i went to see some friends 
and we were going on a, a squash tour in France. And um, they said to me, sorry to hear about your dad, mate. Enough said, yeah? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Enough said, I guess. The great kings of the past looked down on us from those stars, Mufasa tells Simba in The Lion King, uh, which is a sentiment in the film that gets laughed at by his friends later and dismissed for what it is. It's just sentiment. It's a way of distracting yourself from the severity of death. See, our approaches to death often take the approach of a, like a palliative care nurse. We ease the pain that a person's feeling and we make them as comfortable as we can until the sadness passes and we feel desperately awkward if they cry in front of us. But let's be honest, there's no morphine that can fix this. Just, uh, sorry, let's just take morphine because there's no plaster cast that can fix this. You've just got to put up with it. As C.S. Lewis, the, the writer of the Narnia stories, puts it, he says it doesn't really matter whether you grip the arms of the dentist's chair or allow your hands to rest in your lap. The drill drills on. That's what grief is like. But no matter what we think about death, whether we minimize it with talk of paintings or whether we distract ourselves from thinking about it, uh, the French philosopher Pascal was right when he said this. He said, the last act is bloody, however pleasant the rest of the play. A little earth is thrown at last upon our head, and that is the end forever. And so we deny death, or we distract ourselves from thinking about death. Or the other approach that often people take is to rage against death, to, to deny it, to distract ourselves, or to defy it. Like the, the poem, the poet Dylan Thomas expresses it well. Uh, as he was reflecting on the approaching death of his own father, he wrote the poem, Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Fight the impending, inevitable defeat. Fight it. Don't accept it. And this, in many ways, is the cycle of grief. A cycle that we see at play in any whenever any major change occurs in our lives. We deny it, we distract ourselves from it, we defy it, until eventually we have to put up with it and accept it. All cheery stuff so far, isn't it? Now, but it's at this point I want to I take us to the Bible. Um, you see, Scripture, far from minimizing or sentimentalizing suffering, is actually painfully honest whilst at the same time manages to find a genuine reason for hope. As Christians, we don't subscribe to that philosophy to its final degree. We have a different way of thinking about death, and I want to look at what that is together. Um, I'm going to read for us a, a fairly lengthy chunk from a book called Lamentations, uh, which is a lament, hence Lamentations. And it was written by someone who was experiencing immense suffering. His nation had been overrun by invading armies and he was witnessing horrendous acts of brutality with his eyes. And he writes about this. Um, in fact, it's, it's, a book that I used to, it's a book that I used to read regularly whenever I was feeling down. It, you kind of identify with it. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit down, because I'm not gonna put it up on the screen because I don't really want you to just read along. I want you to almost feel what he says and feel it. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. God has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. 
He's broken my bones. He's attacked and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. God has walled me up about so that I cannot escape. He's made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He's made my paths crooked. God is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turns aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He's bent his bow and he has sent me, set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I've become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He's filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So as has my hope from the Lord. I think there's, there's rarely been, um, I guess, a more honest description of the pain of suffering and grief than words like that. Calls God a bear lying in wait, someone who drives arrows into his kidneys. When he says, my teeth grind like gravel, on gravel, we can almost feel it. I've forgotten what happiness is. Which, when you're in the throes of grief, you know, literally being thrown across the floor from one day to the next, talk of colorful and eternal paintings doesn't really help. But you see, this I can identify with. I've forgotten what happiness is. But the reading doesn't end there. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the ghoul. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Something changes in the reading daylight breaks in and it's not because his circumstances have changed it's not because he's taken a painkiller he reminds himself what he knows about God he reminds himself of God's dealings with his people in the past and of his own experience of God in the past the Lord will not cast off forever he says he will have compassion according to the measure of his overflowing abundant steadfast love for he does not willingly afflict. He does not willingly afflict. Therefore, there is cause here. God is not uncaring or unfeeling. Affliction isn't for no, no purpose and no end. Essentially, he's telling himself, God can be trusted. But the question in my mind is, where does he get this from? Where does he get this hope from? You see, if the approach of, I think the approach of the TV show 
is almost entirely natural. It's a natural way of thinking about death. It's a looking around at the world, examining our souls, un- coming to terms with grief and going, okay, maybe life's like this. It's natural. But when someone claims that there is a conscious life after death, that's not natural. Because you look at a dead body, there's clearly no conscious life. So to believe in a conscious existence beyond the grave requires not a natural assessment of the world, it requires a statement of faith. Where is he getting his faith from to make statements about God's unfailing love that will hold him? See, the Bible isn't natural. You can't arrive at the truths in this book just through meditation on the world. Something else happens. So why does the writer, and why do Christians everywhere, seem to think about things differently. I don't think as Christians we're naive or sentimental. This certainly isn't a naive or sentimental assessment of suffering. It's not just wishful thinking as a lot of perhaps new atheists would have us think, oh, religious people are just wishful thinkers. They want a sky fairy, so they've invented one. Now that is a lot more comforting. This, an idea requires faith and guts and determination to hold on to it, sometimes in the face of evidence against it in the brutality of the world and the way that people treat one another. And what's more interesting to me is that in the Old Testament, there is very little focus on heaven. I don't know if you've read it, but in the Old Testament, they talk very little about the afterlife. In fact, in the Old Testament, the lives of the people who lived were more concerned with, almost like the, the, the stuff in the, the story, they're more concerned with their legacy, their ancestors, what's going to happen to them and the land after they've gone, after they've died. But despite that being the also, that was also the focus of ancient civilizations, I should say. See, ancient people either held to that idea, which is quite a Buddhist, a quasi-Buddhist idea, or they held to a kind of shadowlands existence, that when you die, you have this kind of non-real but kind of floaty existence outside of the body. But it wasn't a, it wasn't a real existence that you could therefore say you knew and you learned and you grew and you changed after death. That's what the ancient civilizations believed. But the Jews, the people of the Bible, started to believe something different. Why? What happened? And this, for me, is what I find very exciting. Because Jewish people started to believe that not only was God going to raise them back from the dead and place them in a new creation, Jewish people believed that they could trust God and they could approach death confidently to the point that you have prior to Jesus some people giving themselves as martyrs not to destroy the infidels, and to redeem their soul, they were giving themselves as martyrs to the occupying enemy forces in their day out of the conviction and belief that God loves me so much, he will raise me from the dead. Where does that come from? It's not natural. What happened? What happened, what changed among the Jews, what made them different, was that God, the creator, the God in time and space and human history, spoke. And then he acted. Though outside the universe, God entered it. The author wrote himself into the story of the human race. And what he did was he made a promise to a people. God made a promise that he would be their God and that he would remain faithful to them as long as they both shall live like a marriage contract or covenant. Then, when the, what the Jewish people saw after that promise was made was that 
we call it the stories of the Old Testament, what they saw was that God never left them throughout all of their troubles and that God always seemed to manage to bring hope out of hopelessness and life out of death. Because he made this promise, that's how he acted to them. And so he began with an elderly man whose wife couldn't have children. There was no life. And then he, God, brought life. They saw a man who was betrayed by his brothers and left for dead in an Egyptian prison. They saw him brought to life again and exalted to a place of prestige and honor in, an, in the Egyptian society. Then, when they were slaves in Egypt and on the brink of extinction, God suddenly sent a rescuer who brought them out of death and into life again. Then, when they were overrun by invading armies and disintegrating as a society, he raised up leader after leader after leader who restored order and brought them back to life and death. The Jewish people were positioned in like the crossroads of the ancient world. They had the big empires of Egypt and uh, Egypt in the south and Assyria in the north, and you had these tiny little tribes people, the Israelites in the middle. These people that, by all accounts, should not exist. And time and time again, they came very close to extinction through genocide and other factors. And God, time and time again, brought them from death to life. Now, what that did, what that does to uh, the psyche of a people, as they reflected on that, they began to see God's love for us. His commitment to us is so strong. The chances are not even death will separate us from him. And then their songwriters started to come up with songs about it. Psalm 73 says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And he's my portion forever. And then Psalm 49, those who trust in themselves will find decay, but God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will take me to himself. The historian and theologian Tom Wright, he says, it was this personal experience of God's love, rather than any theory about humans being immortal, that gave rise to the suggestion that God's faithfulness would, after all, be known, not only in this life, but in life beyond the grave. You see, because that's who God is, that's what our hope is. And that's why when there came a man, a righteous, pure, holy man, who loved God with all his heart, who never sinned, and who trusted God, even to the point of death, Psalms like Psalm 16 prepared us for what would happen to him. It says, you won't let your Holy One see decay or abandon his soul to the grave. And so God raised this man, Jesus, from the dead as a way of showing what he will do for all of those who hope in him. God wouldn't allow Jesus' body to see decay. God doesn't lose his grip on those he loves. You see, we sometimes think that faith being a Christian is about us holding tightly onto God. We talk of people losing their faith. Like, I lost my grip on this way of seeing reality. I lost my faith. I've lost my grip. We try to live for God, but the confidence of the Bible is a confidence that comes from a different place. God has a grip on us. God loves us. God doesn't lose those he loves. Someone lo when someone we love dies, we talk about losing them. 
I'm sorry for your loss, we say. Because it is a loss. It's a loss for them. We loved them. I loved my dad, but my love for him wasn't strong enough to be able to stop me from losing him. Like a bar of soap, the tighter we try to hold on to the people that we love, the more likely it is they'll slip out of our hands and disappear. It's not like that with God. What for us is a loss, for God is a gain. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he defeated the enemies of Satan and sin. And when he rose to life on Easter Sunday, he defeated the grave, death itself. So that no longer would death be something that needs to terrify us as though it cuts us off from God, but that we could all of us see death is now just a servant to usher us into God. It's a servant that's under God's control now. Like a, like a house butler who ushers the guests in to meet the master of the house, death has become like that for us. In leaving this world, we are welcomed into the courts of the king. And we see the one who loves us and comes to greet us running like the father from the story of the lost son, running to be with us. So in the New Testament, we find the Apostle Paul saying in Philippians, for me, to live is Christ, but to die, to die is gain. Because I know the strength of my God's love and what he'll do for me. You see, it was that, and it was reflections on that that gave rise, I think, to this idea that being with God face to face is our ultimate destiny and it's our ultimate good. And you see, as our society slips further and further from its moorings in a Christian worldview, as it drifts further and further out to sea, the sea of naturalism or materialism or just Eastern influences, what we can expect is to lose this vision more and more and more. But it must never be the case in the church in the church we're not just pie in the sky idealists who think wouldn't it be nice if there was a life after death let's try hard to believe it try really hard for us we look at history and we say god commits loves never lets go always holds on jesus died was raised we're gonna we're in christ we're gonna die we're gonna raise goodness me my loved ones they're gone but i can trust them to the loving hands of a good father this i call to mind Therefore, I have hope. Here is love, vast as the ocean. Loving kindness like a flood. When the prince of life, my ransom, shed for us his precious blood. That's where our hope comes from. So although it's therapeutic and it feels nice to listen to stories of paintings and an eternal existence in the painting, it's a lot more biblical and it's a lot more hopeful and strong to trust in the strength of the grip of a loving father. Let's pray.